Hello and welcome to episode 365 of the official EstablishTheRun.com podcast. My name is Adam Levitan. I'm one of the co-founders here at ETR. And today I am joined by arguably, arguably, debatably, my favorite podcast, podcast guest ever, former poker pro turned Morgan Stanley Stiff, turned his own options trading firm founder, aka the highest stakes gambling possible. <laughs> The man you know, the man you love, making, I think, his third, but maybe his fourth appearance on the podcast is a legend himself, Jason Strasser. Jason, how's it going, buddy? What's up, dude? Thanks for having me. Uh, Jason made the mistake of, I think, tweeting that he wanted to, like, do a podcast or, or why aren't there more podcasts of like-minded people talking to each other? I mean, you're asking for trouble here going down the pod. I mean, you're on the Wall Street game. You're making money. Why would you want to get into the podcast game? This is yeah, crazy. You know, you're right. I mean, I did like five minutes of exploratory work in that. It's it's a lot of fucking work to do what you can do with this podcast. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's actually like it's I'm sure getting guests on that are interesting. And I, yeah, it's just, it's it when I sort of sat down and talked to a friend about doing it with them, because like that JJ Reddick pod is so awesome. And, yeah. You know, with his buddy. And but yeah, it, it's it's a lot of work and doesn't really fit in my life right now. But yeah, I, I think one day I'd like to do something like that. My both my parents are journalists, so I do feel like that's in my blood a little bit, like interviewing people, talking with people. Uh, I used to write for the paper at Duke, so I, I, I like I like that side of things. But um, yeah, it, the time commitment's crazy. So I have mad respect for people like you that 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 go on this grind. Yeah, when you want to be a poor, uh, you can get in the podcast game. If you want to stay rich, you need to stay in the Wall Street game. Anyways, on today's show, we are going to pick Jason's brain on all things financial markets. I, I mean, I don't know why, but I'm like personally fascinated by this stuff. I think it's because it's just like another form of skill-based gambling, which like obviously skill-based gambling is like literally my favorite thing in the world. But this, the whole financial markets thing, it's like so deep. And I feel like there's some element that, you know, we, me and Jason talked about before, like with suits trying to keep the little guy out. Like there isn't really like an upswing poker or an ETR fantasy for financial strategy, I don't think. So, you know, getting to talk to Jason is really, I think, the best we're going to get. Quick note to start here. I think Jason would agree that we don't leave free money lying on the ground. This BetMGM promo we have going on, it briefly expired, but we got it back up and it is live now on the betting dropdown from the site. I mean, we're going to talk to Jason about this in a little bit, but the customer acquisition cost that gaming sportsbook companies are willing to spend right now is absolutely outrageous and it's not going to last. But as a consumer, like it's insane not to try to take care, take advantage of it right now. If you don't have a BetMGM account and use our link, you'll get a risk-free bet up to $1,000 and an $85 coupon to use on any ETR product. Just an absolutely insane deal. But we'll talk about the gaming stocks here in a little bit. Uh, oh, and for background on Jason, if you guys have never heard Jason before, we're not going to do his background here. We've done it before. You can check out uh, episode number 69, Hi-O, or episode 172 for some more background on Jason. All right. Let's start with, I guess, the pullback, you would call it, the correction. I don't know what you want to call it, but it's been, from what I can tell, a pullback of mostly risk-on assets. In other words, tech stocks, crypto, crypto. I mean, since November, they have taken a big haircut. I mean, at least 30%, 50%. Some are down a ton more than that. What is your take, Jason, on what happened here since November, just with the overall market and some of this risk-on stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, you have to zoom out a little bit. I think the market's down 6% this year, the S&P. So we're not looking at, like like you said, we're not looking at a catastrophic market event here. I mean, the two things pulling the markets down, I mean, 
to a much lesser extent, the war in Ukraine, you know, I think that's a very small part of the market. There, there are some like very big consequences. I think we're going to talk about it later that this is going to have for the world. Um, but in terms of market, I don't think that's a huge impact. Obviously, the, the the big thing this year is inflation, which is leading to higher you know interest rates, and that's what's causing the volatility this year. And when you ask like, hey, why are the growth stocks getting murdered? Like they're way more sensitive to higher interest rates than other things because if you're not going to make money for ten years and you're going to burn money for ten years. Um, a, the cost of that money you're about to burn just went up, and then you're not showing profit for 10 years. So that, that's being discounted at a higher rate back. So things that don't make money, uh, very speculative investments, uh, yeah, that's what's gotten absolutely murdered. And crypto has gotten involved in this. I mean, I think crypto is so broad now. It's so, sort of weird talking about crypto. Like, you know, the difference between Bitcoin and like other stuff that's going on in crypto, there's a huge gap there. So like, I sort of feel like you have to sort of compartmentalize crypto. But but yeah, I mean, it's it's the same stuff. And then, of course, within crypto and within growth stocks, there's just giant heaping piles of shit that are all going to zero, which is probably normal. Like all these SPACs that went to market, like and we can talk about that in more detail later. But like SPACs, you know, like a lot of the incentive for a SPAC is just get the deal done. You know, it doesn't matter what you're buying. Just get the mm-hmm. damn thing done. You get the free roll on it. So. So, yeah, I see what we've seen is like piles of crap be priced closer to piles of crap, which is good. We've seen a pullback in the high growth stuff. You know, we've seen some things that are interest rate sensitive, like things that like have big dividends. You know, if you're if you're buying a dividend stock and interest rates are one percent and they go to three percent, you know, you're not going to pay as much for that same dividend stream, right? So mm-hmm. there are things that have pulled back, but yeah, it's been brutal for the stuff that like people were investing in during two, you know COVID times. Well, yeah, I, and that's what I was going to bring up. Like my thought is like the pandemic situation was so unique. Like right when the pandemic hit and it kind of hit the mainstream, the market absolutely tanked, and then it just rips straight up and like every stone cold donkey in the world was just printing by buying any stock literally i mean I literally you know portnoy was taking scrabble letters out of a bag putting them together buying yeah. it and, and winning right and like these people during the pandemic they can't leave the house they're not spending any money they're just blasting on tech stocks they're blasting on stocks in general they're getting their stimulus check they're blasting on it i mean is any part of this correction do you think relative to that like people just aren't home blasting and they don't have as much money as they did anymore to blast I think the correction is largely not because of that, but I do think the pockets of craziness that we saw, like the, the the pandemic craziness was contained to like, you know, Penn and GameStop and AMC and like SPACs. And like they, were, it, they were contained. That activity has totally dried up. You know, like this idea that, wow, the retail investor is going to band together and do all this crazy shit. I mean, I'm not like writing them off. I, I'm sure we're going to get another GME type of thing in the future. There will be some sort of cultural phenomenon like that that happens. But yeah, that's, I mean, th- absolutely. Those people aren't doing that. They're, they're, they're betting on sports now and they're going out and meeting, you know, going out to bars and doing, you know, having fun stuff. So I, I think, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think the market's down because of that. I don't think, I think it's all interest rates. That's what's causing the, the, the reset in the market. But yeah, why are SPACs, why are people not doing all this stuff in pen gaming anymore? Definitely, that's your answer. Uh, okay, let's talk about the inflation and interest rate stuff, as you've mentioned that a couple of times. So uh, I think like inflation is sometimes like some abstract term. People don't really feel it. But, uh, you know, I mean, everybody feels it now. You go to the grocery store, uh, you know, a carton of eggs is $10. You go to book a hotel and it was $400 last year. And now it's 1200 I mean, inflation is purchasing power, I feel like has gotten to a point where like everybody notices it. Now, how does that directly affect markets and any other thoughts you have on the whole inflation discussion? Yeah, I've, I've always felt like there was a, 
more inflation than it appeared. But when you look at the government numbers, like inflation in my life always felt like the things that I like to buy have been inflating for a while now. Mm -hmm. Like the, the, the stuff I spend my money on, like travel and, you know, whatever wine or food or sushi and like the crap that like I like to buy, mm -hmm. that's been inflating like crazy for a long time. The government inflation numbers are usually, uh, you know, the, the, the formula that they're using, I'm not an economist, but the formula that they're using is pretty wimpy in terms of showing the actual effects of inflation, in my opinion. Like my life has always felt like it's inflating way harder than those numbers. Mm -hmm. And to show the government numbers at 8% is, is just absolutely insane. I mean, it's like, this was like not even a tail outcome three or four years ago. Like this was, this is, this is, we're pure insanity. And like housing prices up 15% or whatever it is in the country. I mean, it is, it is crazy. And, you know, we're getting this very unique combination of things happening. I mean, I think the one main thing that's happened is like, you know, supply chains are busted. I don't know if you've talked to friends that are in businesses and stuff like that. It's just so hard to get stuff shipped to you from, from Asia or whatever. And mm -hmm. semiconductor, there's a shortage. It's a, it's a huge problem. And just a lot of things are adding up. Commodity prices are going crazy. All those things are happening at the same time. And yeah, this is epic. Like if for people that are just sort of casually like, oh, noticing gas is higher. Like, yeah, gas at the pump is higher, but we've seen gas these prices before. But like 8% CPI, I mean, that's freaking nuts. And what that really means is like the number that you and I are dealing with is a lot higher than 8%. I promise. I'm sure you feel higher than 8% right now. Sure. And I'm curious though, like, yeah, okay, we get that. What is the downstream effects on markets? Like the, like you said, the market's only down 6% this year. That seems real as a whole. Obviously, tech stocks and stuff are down a lot more. The market as a whole is only down 6%. That doesn't sound like a lot given everything you just said that's going on. Well, yeah. So the you have to think about the in inflation expectations for the future. Like the way the market's priced right now, it's not 8% going forward. Like if we're in a market where 8% is going forward, interest rates have to go up meaningfully. Mm -hmm hopefully, if we're not in a horrible recession. And in that situation, you know, you're going to have a, a bigger pullback in the markets. I think the way I would think about it is the market thinks inflation's high now. It's going to go down in the future. I think most people have sort of 3 4% going forward. So, you know, you have, if it's not a blip and it's actually going to be at levels like this going forward, which would surprise me, by the way, because some of these things are sort of, I mean, the jump in commodity prices, you would, you would, you would need another jump to get, you know, to get that again. And I, it would, it would surprise me if we kept going at 8%, but yeah, I, I think the way I would think about it is the market's still expecting it to come way down in the future, which is why you haven't gotten this big pullback. Mm -hmm. And the re the, the thing that causes the pullback is interest rates, right? It's, it's really, that's the way I think about it. It's like higher interest rates affect every asset pricing out there. Every single thing you could possibly price a sports card, anything, a top shot, like everything you'd want to price in this world, like that number matters. As it goes up, it's going to hurt pricing. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I don't have anything super insightful to say, but other than you have to understand the market expectations is still for this to be a blip. You mentioned the housing market, and I think this is related. A lot of the times where people see the interest rate and the issues is when they go to get a mortgage. I mean, you know, I bought my house, uh, you know, uh, almost a year ago. And I was able to get, you know, a rate below three. Now people are lucky if they can get, you know, four or five percent. I don't know what it is these days. Uh, but I don't think that's, I don't know, maybe it has curbed the pricing. I mean, specifically in the suburbs, people are getting, you know, tens, hundreds of thousands over asking. Listings are lasting 24 hours. You're seeing like 25, 30% year over year rises in housing prices in certain areas. I mean, this can't last, right? Or, or maybe people are just too rich now and everybody's just blasting on housing in the suburbs. I, I don't know. Is this housing thing 
going to be a problem downstream also? My view is no, but what I think is happening right now. So right now the 30 year is like mid fives, mid to high fives is what most people are getting, um, which is high. It's a high number. But if you went back to 2018, 19, the number was mid to high fours. So remember in 2018, 19 interest rates were a certain level. We had COVID they came way down and now we're getting a reset higher. So relative to 18, 19, they're about 1% higher than, than they were. So yes, they're higher. It's, and it was a shockingly quick move. What I think you're seeing now is a panic to buy. Cause I think, when rates go up, people are like, fuck, I need to lock this shit in right now. And on the flip side, if you locked in 3% like you did, right, you're not selling and buying a new house. You right. know, you know. So, so what's happened is, is there's this like in a, in a I, this, again, I don't think this is going to go on forever, but you have this like complete panic to buy because every day rates go higher. Uh, people are not really like trying to flip and move into other stuff. Cause I mean, I don't know how my house is also way up. Like, but like, I look at selling it. Well, I still got to buy something. I got to live somewhere. And I, and when I do that new purchase, I'm going to have to, you know, pay up for my mortgage. And so, yeah, like I, I do think that if you got, you know, remember, I don't know if you're, you ever talked to your parents about like the 1980s, right? Home, you know, mortgage rates were 15%, 20 right. huge impact on housing prices. They're, they're, they're very directly correlated, but we're just in this weird environment where everyone's fucking loaded. And rates are higher and just fucking panic time. Yeah. I liked it better when everybody was poor. It was it was more fun when everybody was when everybody was just scratching and clawing for for that extra dollar. I don't I don't like all this hundred thousand over ask and stuff like that. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, you hear the term recession thrown around a lot. I think like the official definition of a recession is simply GDP falling two consecutive right. quarters. Is that how you define it? Or maybe how yeah. should we define it as a layman? Yeah, yeah, that's how, that's how the yeah. Okay, and are we heading? Do you think we're heading towards the recession? And if we are, is that even a big deal? Like, what are the actual effects of being in a recession? Yeah, the market is not pricing that. So, I, I would say the odds of a recession. I mean, I, I this is not science, but the odds of the recession in the market right now for the next three years is something like ten to fifteen percent. So, if we end up in a recession, it would be a absolute downside surprise to asset prices. So, if you mm -hmm. thought that was going to happen, you wanted to take a lot of risk off the table now because. Uh, assets are not being priced for that. Mm -hmm. It's a huge problem. It's 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 actually a, you mean you can make an argument. It's a it's a really big problem in the face of inflation, right? Because the normal tools the Federal Reserve does to make things easier and, and get out of a recession is cutting interest rates. But if you have inflation, it, it's really a double edged sword because it's really hard to cut in interest rates because you can keep getting inflation and you can get in this awful cycle where you have. A recession and inflation that's like a nightmare scenario for 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 risk pricing so yeah i mean i i would say yes a recession is a huge deal and i would say it's a low probability event in markets but i think as someone who's being prudent about investing you have to absolutely consider that outcome as possible because there are a lot of things lining up right now and we're seeing some very early signs of the low-end consumer like that that's what i think people need to appreciate that there's a big divide right now in the world like if you're if you're making 15 bucks an hour right now, you know, gas pricing, yeah. the stimmies are gone. You know, we're seeing companies like Rent a Center, you know, low end place to buy, you know, to rent to buy like different appliances and stuff. Like they have bad numbers. A lot of the, the, the it's very early, but we're seeing signs that the low end consumer is really getting hit hard. It, it's going to be really, really gross if we get a recession, especially for that group, because it's going to job losses. Um, Inflation really hits that group very, very hard on yeah. food, on gas and things like that. And yeah, so long story short, it is a big deal. You're going to be fine if there's a recession, but but it 
but you expect risk pricing and risk assets to go down and and the bottom side of the you know the, the poor people making minimum wage is going to be brutal if that yeah happens. Yeah, for sure. And I think about that with the inflation stuff too. Like I'm lucky it, the gas price doesn't really affect me that much, but it can change someone's life. And that's when you start to really get worried. Yeah. Um, and food, I mean, and we're, we can yeah. talk about Russia more, but the, the big thing that's going to happen in the world in the next year is food pricing. Like, again, something that doesn't matter. You brought up eggs before, but like, it doesn't really matter to you. But like, if you're in Sri Lanka right now, which they're, they're, they're rioting right now over food, you know, it's a huge problem because the one thing that is really affected in Russia, Ukraine, is fertilizing like a lot of the fertilizer comes from that part of the world and the ingredients in fertilizer and so yeah food commodity stuff it's, it really does hurt the, the the bottom end the you mentioned the retail uh buyer and what jason means by retail is just like regular people like me just like going and blasting on some stocks that's what he means by retail the last time we spoke it was wild i mean everybody i knew i mean everybody even people who like weren't really into gambling or they didn't follow stock market everybody on all my group text and everything, everybody's blasting on stocks. Mm -hmm. It feels to me, like you said, like that's totally over now. Has that changed what you do? Has that changed the market as a whole? Like does retail even really mean anything? I, I feel like the whole market is just like Vanguard, like spending trillions on their stupid mutual funds or whatever, you know, like uh, do the retail people even really matter? And how has the market changed now that retail seems to be out? There's been a downtick in activity from 2020 but we're still at very high absolute levels. If you zoomed out over the last 10 years, like we're still very, very, very high in terms of retail activity. So if you look at options volume, if you look at you know stuff that's happening in Robinhood or SoFi or pick your favorite brokerage, E-Trade. The funny, you brought up the, the, the BetMGM, you have a great promo. The same shit's happening right now in brokerage companies because they were in a land grab for uh, customers. Right now, E-Trade has a promotion where if you put in, now it's, a, it's tiered, but if you put in a million and a half bucks, they give you $3,500 cash. Uh, I think you have to keep it there for like a year. But um, the same type of things that are happening in your world in sports betting, they're actually happening with brokerages now because there's still this retail investor out there that they're fighting for. They are active. They are doing things. But we've seen a downtick, and, I, and, I, and it's been more uh, competitive to get customers. Um, but yeah, it, zooming out, retail activity is very high still. It's just, it's just off from the complete insanity, which you had to expect that not to be sustainable. Can you explain the the Vanguard and the Fidelity funds and stuff like that for a second? I mean, if if everybody is just like, oh yeah, just go buy some Vanguard mutual funds. That's like the default. Or go buy some Fidelity mutual funds. That's like the default. And I assume there's like a basket of you know stocks and all these. Obviously, like these guys are buying so much. I think I read Vanguard has like seven trillion in assets under management. I mean, it's totally insane. Are what these guys doing like? Are they essentially a Control. I, I don't know. Like, there has to be some massive effect of all these guys constantly yeah, yeah. buying on the market. It, it's it is creating this interesting effect. So, the thing about Vanguard is they're not active, right? So, like, if a stock's at a hundred, or a stock's at fifty, or a stock's at a thousand, they're just when money comes in, they're buying it. When money comes out, they're selling. So they're not like they don't give a shit what the price is, right? They're just buying. They're 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 a market participant, but that that one that's not paying attention. Mm -hmm. And what's happening is they're hoping that professionals out there sort out the efficient pricing it, it'd be like sports betting like nfl sunday i'm sure you could just like bet blindly on games and not get two house the reason is is because all these professionals are putting yeah. in the work it's the same thing with vanguard like they're having these like no fee funds vanguard does like rarely pays attention to votes like they own like 10 percent of companies they shouldn't be paying attention to like who the ceo is who's on the board like they don't they don't do any of that shit um they might follow what a proxy advisor says but like they're basically they're basically like the kid that's just copying homework and not doing the bare minimum. And mm -hmm. 
relying on the rest of the world to do to do the work on on pricing these different assets. And as Vanguard gets bigger and bigger and passive, not just Vanguard, but passive gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and bigger, it becomes a problem because think about, I mean, we went from like rough numbers here. We went from like, you know, 20% passive investing maybe 10 years ago to something like 50 today. What does that look like if it goes to 70 or 80? You know, you're going to get to see, you're going to have like literally three quarters of shareholders just be zombie ones. They're just doing whatever the fuck the index says. Right. So it, it's a very interesting time. And there is a there is a point where Vanguard gets too big and we might already be there. I sort of think we're not there yet, but there is a point where you have to be really, really careful where um, if because money is only flowed in. Like right. we've only seen what it looks like when money is going into Vanguard. We haven't seen when Vanguard has big outflows. And it could be very, very, very ugly because it's just kind of weird that they're just so much of the market is just not doing any work. Yeah. Well, you mentioned outflows. I, I want to skip here to this thing about baby boomers. I mean, this is a massive generation, my parents' generation. You know, I, I mean, there's just so many people. Now they're all getting old. They're retiring. You know, maybe they're turning their stocks into cash. Maybe they're withdrawing from their Vanguard mutual fund. Maybe they're dying and leaving their wealth to their kids. You know, I, I don't know. Who knows? I can't really figure out the fallout here, but there has to be something with all this like wealth movement between the baby boomers who obviously had like incredible success from a macro perspective down to like the lower generation. Do you have any thoughts on what the effects are there? Yeah, that's a really complicated question. I mean, the, the thing that I always think about when this topic is brought up is a little bit different than what you're asking, but is sort of government spending, right? As the population ages, you're going to have much higher costs for social security and Medicare uh, within, you know, within for the U.S. government, the U.S. government right now, and no one wants to talk about it, but it, you know, we're spending now. The amount we're spending right now is elevated because of COVID. There was all the stimmy stuff and infrastructure build. So, so I think it's a little bit overinflated right now. But they spent almost seven trillion last year. They brought in four trillion, right? So they're spending three trillion more than they brought in. Just think about that for a second, right? That, that's just an epic number. Now, no one, everyone seems to just ignore it because it's like, hey, like we can just keep borrowing money. There's no consequences. But mm -hmm. actually now there are going to be some consequences because there's going to be higher interest rates on that. So, you know, 1%, we have almost 30 trillion of debt. So every 1% is like 300 billion a year on, on that, right? So when I think about people getting older, it's like, A, they're leaving the workforce. Who's going to replace them? Um, the birth death rate in this country is not very good. You know, we're very heavily, we, we're very heavy on immigration to sort of continue population growth here. So what I what, what you'd want to see is the baby boomers not selling off everything. I, I think most of these baby boomers are have done very well in real estate and things like that. And um, I would love for my parents to die with zero Bill, yeah. Bill, Bill Perkins style, but I don't yeah. think they will. Um, so I do expect a lot of it to get packed. I'm not, I don't think there's a big stock market event here. What I think is happening though, is we're going to get a real stress test on the, we're going to keep spending more and more and more on the government level. Is anyone going to give a shit about this? Does this matter? And that's, that's kind of what I'm watching. All right. Let's go to uh, something I actually know about the DraftKings and various gaming stocks. I mean, DraftKings stock peaked around 70 something. It's down to like 15, 16 bucks. Now we got a question from A Raven. He said, if my wife went down as frequently as DKNG, my life would be much improved. Why has the stock stock gone down daily for six straight months? And, and one thing that I wanted to ask about too, in relation to DKNG, I mean, it's public. Like, when Jason Robbins and Kalish and Learman and Aguiar, whoever else sold, like that was public. And like maybe with my DKNG stock, I should be like, oh, these guys are selling. Why the fuck aren't I? What, what, what am I doing here holding my dick with, with this stock? Right. And so, yeah, any takes on that or gaming stocks in general? First of all, I think selling stocks is normal, especially a company like 
DraftKings, like it was, it was a long process for those guys to get their company to public and get that liquidity. Like there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of situations where people are like not making much money. They're spending money because they think they have like 50 or hundred million dollars worth of stock. It goes public. They have loans. It's very normal. I, I, I would not fault any management for selling stock, honestly. Like, like obviously what I'm trying to say is I don't think it was a foreshadowing thing. I don't think they were like, oh man, we're screwed. Let me sell stock. I think it's very natural to say, okay, I've made it. I finally have this thing public. I need to diversify and take care of my grandchildren's grandchildren. Like I totally get it. Um, the thing that the management did that I thought was like a red flag was complaining about short sellers. I think it was Robbins was out there saying evil short sellers. Evil. Like, I think we should put that to rest right now. Like, look at Tesla. Everyone was short that thing. All these geniuses and, you know, I'm not, I'm not calling myself a genius, <laughs> but people were short this thing. Right. And what, what happened? Well, they ended up figuring out how to make a bunch of cars and make a bunch of fucking money. Now, now is the stock overvalued? I think so. Yes. But the bottom line is he proved the thesis of the shorts completely wrong. How did he, how did he beat the short sellers? He didn't, he just beat them. He just, he just made a valuable business, right? DraftKings is supposed to be like the bull case is that they're profitable starting in 2024. Okay. They're looking at New Jersey and they're extrapolating it, which I always thought was interesting because my experience with people from New Jersey is they're a little bit more degenerate than the country in general. <laughs> um, but, but so like if you're taking New Jersey and you're extrapolating it to like Oklahoma and like Utah, like, okay, like that's not the same person, yeah. in whatever. But anyway, um, they're taking New Jersey. They're saying, Hey, look, look at our unit economics in New Jersey. We spend, I'm just making up numbers. We spend $600 to get a client. The lifetime is this, blah, blah, blah. We're going to make money. 2024 is when you'll start to see us making money. If they do that, I mean, DraftKings is worth $6 billion today. It's going to be worth more than that. If they have a, if they have a profitable business that's growing, they're, they're going to, it's going to be worth more. So in my opinion, it's a red flag. Just focus on making money. You make money, DraftKings, the shorts are going to get, lose their house. Don't worry about that. Um, as far as DraftKings, like, I think you just need to zoom out a little bit. It got caught up in that SPAC nonsense. It was one of the first SPACs, right? And it was it was definitely part of that craziness in 2020. Um, six billion dollars, though. If you would, if I had asked you seven years ago, DraftKings were six billion, you would have been like, "That's a fucking good outcome for them." Okay. And I still think it's a gigantic public market success. They got to raise a lot of money. You know, they're bur they're burning a billion a year. Where did this come from? Like the public markets has served them very very well. So yeah, long story short, uh, I think when the stock was at seventy and pricing in like $50 billion valuation, it probably was a little <laughs> bit ahead of itself, right? Just like when the, the the space travel from Chamath was priced at whatever it was, like a lot of things got ahead of themselves. As it is today, you know, it, it's just a question. Do you think this is a good business? I personally have a lot of questions whether this is a good business. I think one time I posted like, hey, is this actually a good business, what they're doing? Like, yes, they're building a business, but a lot of people said, hey, the, the end game for these guys is like casino games, like right. slot and blackjack or whatever. We know that's a good business. Um, so yeah, I, I'm very curious. Like, I, I don't have really a dog in this fight, other than I just don't think I just don't think like the public markets have been bad to this company, and I don't think six billion is a crazy valuation, crazy low valuation for this company. And it's all about whether they can stop burning a billion a year and turn a profit. So yeah, well, I, and this goes back to the thing I was I mentioned in the ad read we did. You know, like customer acquisition costs have to come down for every single company. Right now, when will that happen? probably not for multiple years, you know? And so for them to say we're going to be profitable in 2024, I, I don't know about that. But yeah, I mean, I think when they can get customer acquisition costs down and and like you said, I mean, you're only holding two, three, four percent in sports, 
Like that's yeah. like very low. You need people to play I casino, blackjack, roulette, three card, whatever they want to play online. Like that's how it turns into a business worth a lot more than six billion. I have no interest in playing those games, but I'm sure there's a ton of people out there who do. So yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, uh, yeah, like, I think you nailed it. It, it just doesn't seem like a great business <laughs> to me, yeah. like as someone that's not, and also like the lifetime value of these customers, like, there's no loyalty here, right? Like if some shitty little thing pops up and offers you $500 to make a free bet and you're a DraftKings customer, you're going to say, fuck DraftKings. I'm going to go like, it, it just, and I think Europe's a good sign, like a good sort of, uh, you, you can kind of see in Europe what happened, right? Like Flutter isn't worth like a jillion dollars, right? It's like, a, I think a $5 billion company or something. Like clearly we got a little bit ahead of ourselves with some of the valuations, but um, yeah. yeah, I'm very curious to see how it all turns out. Uh, okay. I, I love Twitter, man. I mean, Twitter, I'm not exaggerating, literally changed my life. Like if not for Twitter, I'm probably begging Jason for a job, like getting his coffee oh, as we speak. Gosh. However, I'm concerned. I like Elon Musk. I, and I think Elon would be, uh, uh, a great or, or a better steward for Twitter. I'm just concerned about rocking a boat that's been so good to me. But from a business perspective, what do you think about Elon Musk's hostile takeover attempt of Twitter that's going on right now? Yeah, I'm like, I'm lost. I mean, doesn't this dude have some shit to do? Like he has a, <laughs> he has a car company, right? He's got a Tesla. He's got a, he's launching rockets, right? He's got tunnels in Vegas. He's got the brain, the things going in your brain. Yeah. Um, the whole thing is, is very strange to me because uh, let's just do the math real quick. He needs 50 billion or something to buy, to buy Twitter. Right. So he'll, I mean, what is rumored is he, he put in a few already, but like the rumor is he wants to put in like 10 or 15. Right. Okay. So, okay. I think New York post said that. So he wants to put in 10 or 15. So we need to find 35 billion. Maybe banks will loan him 10 against Twitter. It's not, it's not the kind of company banks want to loan money against. They don't have like a lot of assets. It's kind of mm -hmm. not a very high cash flow business, whatever. Okay. So maybe, Okay, so we need 25, he needs to find 25 billion. I think it's just got, it's, let's just, that's a lot of money, right? Yeah. So most of these large PE firms, right? Their big funds are like $10 billion or $20 billion. So he's got to find like, what, like five private equity funds to like write the biggest checks they've ever written in their life to come along. Or he's got to find like some money from somewhere. And then I'm very skeptical of private equity. Imagine you ran a private equity firm, Adam, and you're like, hey, I'm going to put money in this deal, but Elon's going to be in full control over it, right? You know, like it's it's really messy deal to be in. It's not like mm -hmm. a clean deal where you have control. Like you got this Elon guy that's like, I, I also do like him. He's just a very unpredictable guy, sure. right? And, and like, you know, so the whole thing is very bizarre to me. And I think the market is sort of discounting the idea that he could, he's actually going to buy this thing. It's I mean, if he sold Tesla stock to do it, that would be crazy. Um, the only thing I'd say is, and Tesla reported very good earnings just before this podcast, so maybe this isn't true, but it's always a red flag when 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 people like sort of like jump over there. Like the, the example I wanted to give is PayPal was rumored to buy Pinterest. This was like a year ago. Everyone was like, "What the fuck? Why would PayPal buy Pinterest? Like that doesn't make any sense." Like, and then like next quarter they like totally screwed up. Like they missed all their numbers. I think the CFO ended up leaving. It was like a total mess. So a lot of times it's sort of a red flag when people are like, so that's why with Elon's just wired different. I'm, I'm not right. necessarily with him. He's just like hard to understand, but um, you know, you could think maybe is this some bizarre way for him to try to like come up with an excuse to sell more Tesla to diversify? I don't know. Like it's very hard to understand why he's doing this. Um, And yeah. free speech and all this stuff. Like I, I do think we have to bring up Donald Trump here because I think this is a part of it. Like it's, I, I don't hear people talking about this side of this debate, but like 
I, I'm not a very political person. Our former president of the U.S. shouldn't be indefinitely banned from Twitter. He's 35%, by the way, in betting markets to win in 2024. Yeah. Okay, like whether you like him or not, like he should be on Twitter and we should be able to hear what he's saying about things. And um, I think that's part of it. Like, I mean, oh. you know. My, my my take is that Elon, like, and this is kind of the way I've tried to live my life too, is just like create value and money will follow. I don't think Elon is even thinking about getting money. Like, I don't think he, th he thinks like, oh, I'm going to, buy Twitter and I'm going to make a bunch of money from it or diversify my profile. I think he literally thinks that Twitter is an important thing for the free speech and town square type stuff. I, I think that's literally all he's thinking. I agree with you that I, I'd be surprised if it actually went through, but I, I really have no idea. Um, yeah. Do you regret? We, should Donald, we should let Donald Trump back on Twitter. Let's be real about that. I mean, yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's sort of funny about certain things, but be like, it's, it's just insane to me. Like we're a world where we should be hearing both sides of things and, whether you like him or not, he's an important guy. Yeah, the, the thing is, you can't free speech doesn't it doesn't cover everything, right? You can't say uh, go murder someone, right? And so that's right. what they try to right. get. That's what they try to get him on, right. you know. But whatever, inciting a riot, which I agree. But I, I just felt like you know you could ban an indefinite ban. I, I think is doing a disservice to everyone. Um. Uh, uh. While we're on the Elon topic, you mentioned you had a Tesla short going along with all the other sharps in the world. Is there something to be learned from that? Just like, hey, some guys are like above the fundamental economics of a company. Like is Elon or some of these other guys, Bezos, whatever, above it? I mean, Bezos created like a super va indisputably valuable company, right? Sure. In my opinion. But where, yeah, I mean, I, I learned not to short a religion. You know, I, I sort of <laughs> felt like I did that, you know? And, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter if, if Tesla, Tesla is the closest to thing to a religion as I have ever seen. So, I mean, most of my friends are not religious and, and, but they're, but some of them really do believe in this God. And yeah, I mean, uh, that, that's what I learned. Like it, it's not, it's a little, if you just zoom out, Tesla's worth a trillion dollars today, right? If you zoom out and you think about like, they're worth more than like two times the rest of the entire auto industry put together. And I know that people will say that's a boomer take Tesla's all this other stuff going on. But like the bottom line is like, you know, it's a thousand dollar stock, you know, it's trading just unconventional metrics. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, I think they're making $15 in earnings this year or something like that. I know this is all boomer shit, but, <laughs> but, but um, yeah, my, the lesson I learned was like, you know, it doesn't really matter what I think about the valuation. If this is a cult and all the, I mean, all the shareholders now at this point are members of the cult. It's not like right. the, there's just no one left. That's like, Oh man, this stock's too expensive. I got to sell it. Like they're all gone. It's just cult members only in there. So yeah, yeah it's like, yeah. But it's I not just cult members, right? Because like I said before, like if Vanguard's buying the S&P 500 Vanguard for you, they, they don't have opinions. Like, you know what I'm saying? Right. Like, I don't care about them. They can own half a Tesla. They're just a wallflower anyway. Like they right. don't, they don't count. But the people that are actually like deciding what price Tesla is and interacting in the market in a rational sense, you know, the only major shareholders that are actually active, I should have said that are left. Right. Are, you know, part of the cult. All right. We got to get to crypto here. Just a couple more things before we get to listener questions. You know, uh, we talked about the haircut on the price. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't really want to talk about that on crypto. I'm still, I'm curious if, what you think about crypto as an inflation hedge. Because that was like what the Bitcoin maxis had said a lot. Oh, crypto is a great uh, hedge against inflation. Crypto can replace gold, et cetera, et cetera. Now that we're staring inflation in the face, uh, what do you think about that take? Yeah, I don't think people should bail on that thesis. I think people, again, need to zoom out and see what pricing in for inflation now. The market is not expecting like bananas inflation going forward. So 
in my opinion, yes, we have this incredible blip now. It's being viewed as a semi-blip now. Um, we haven't gotten where the market is expecting like super high inflation going on indefinitely. If that is your thesis, like I, the way I view Bitcoin, cryptos, you know, let's just talk Bitcoin. The way I view Bitcoin is like a tug of war right now. You have higher interest rate. Higher interest rates are bad for Bitcoin. Let, anything that just sits there and doesn't earn anything like is bad. Gold, higher interest rates are bad for gold. Now, on the flip side, you have inflation, where this is a very useful, in my opinion, I'll, I'm comfortable calling Bitcoin like a hard asset, you know, like a building, land, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm comfortable if you want to group Bitcoin in with that. Um, to me, uh, high inflation, you want to own hard assets. So there's just this tug of war going on. And the other thing that's sort of tugging it down is that it's it's owned by the people that are owning SPACs, <clears throat> owning all this crazy high growth shit that's going down. So like the people that are sort of, um, feeling pain in one area of the market, you know, it, it, a lot of times it kind of seeps into other parts of the market. Um, but yeah, if I was, you know, I think people that are buying Bitcoin as an inflation hedge should not give up on it. That's what I think. Uh, friend of the show, one of the best friends of the show, obviously, Peter Jennings, he's your mate. He had a question. What is Jason's view on the correlation between crypto and other markets? Historically, crypto has traded as a risk on asset. Do we expect that to continue? You kind of already hit on that. But yeah, any any response there to Peter yeah, yeah. where it's just all core, it seems like it's all correlated. Yeah. So when the market is being driven by volatility, that's driven from interest rates. So if the market is moving on interest rates, which right now, that's what's driving volatility in markets, rates. I think you're going to see crypto be very highly correlated to the market because the rates that are pulling the market up and down are also going to be pulling crypto up and down. It's the same forces. But I don't think that's necessarily like the the entire like regime we're going to be in forever. Like it's actually a very like sh- you know near term phenomenon that interest rates are like having this huge effect on equity pricing, because they've been so low and so boring for so long. So my view is that yes, in the short term, while the focus is on interest rates, you're going to see. It. I do see a scenario where Bitcoin could really break out, and in other things like Ethereum could really break out from that sort of lockstep thing mm-hmm. and look a little bit more like gold and a little bit less like the S&P. It, um, so yeah, that's what I would say. When the focus moves away from interest rates and onto other things that are driving market pricing, that's when Bitcoin will have a chance to sort of uh, decouple. I got to ask you about this this seemingly beef. I don't know if I'd call it a beef because it's one side. I don't think he's responding to you, but this yeah, beef nothing. you have with... That, that's that's how you know, he, you know he's... He, he, I'm, too, I'm a peasant, you know? I'm, <laughs> I'm just a troll on the internet. Yeah. This beef with, with Chamath. For those guys who don't know, I'm referring to Chamath Pali Hapatia, former yep. Facebook executive turned VC. He's a part owner of the Warriors. He's always on CNBC. Anyways, I, I listen to his podcast every week. It's called the All In Podcast. He does it with three other VCs. I actually find it like really fascinating. Like I never miss an episode. And to me, great podcast. And, and to me, like a total idiot with this stuff. Tramal seems incredibly sharp, incredibly smart, opinionated. I mean, he says some stupid shit sometimes, but my read on him was not negative at all. So I was actually like kind of surprised that you have this seemingly very negative view of him. What am I missing on Chamath and, and what's going on there? So let's back up. So when the SPAC stuff started going crazy, he was like the god, right? Because right. he launched, you know, his Virgin Galactic was the first one. I'm going to get the order wrong here, but then... There's Clover Health, there was SoFi, and there was, uh, what am I forgetting? Open Door, right? So he had IPOA, IPOB, IPOC, IPOD. They all turned into those four companies. And he was sort of the face of the SPAC movement. And people, like, to, when this started, were 
idolizing him on my Twitter feed. I would just get home and I would be like, this guy is a hero. By the way, I also love the podcast. I don't like to hear what he says as much. For me, that's the low point. I actually have been paying someone to edit him out of the podcast. And I listen to that podcast, Exchema. Um, I love Friedberg and I like Sachs. Not yeah. Sachs. I like I like Friedberg and I like... Um, J. Cal. Not, not, uh, no, no, I meant Sachs. Sorry. Yeah, Sachs. Yeah. So my order is Freeberg here. Uh -huh. He's by far my favorite. Yeah. And then Sachs in the middle. Yeah. Uh, and then J. Cal and then Shamathur. Right. Um, but uh, so, so back up. So he was being worshiped. And I just started showing, at first, I, I was just showing people look at the SPAC economics. He is getting the most insane free roll on you guys. You're, you're, he is crushing it because you guys are out there buying the spec. He does not give a shit. Well, he does give a shit, but if he was being completely economically rational, just closing deals and getting them done is really the name of the game when you do SPACs because you get this gigantic free roll on, on the equity. Mm -hmm. And he did Virgin Galactic. It went way up. Okay. He sold some stock. He made a bunch, shit ton of money in Virgin Galactic. But if you, if you zoom out right now, all four of those stocks are below trust value. They're all below the IPO level. Yeah. And most people that bought them didn't even buy them at the IPO level. They bought them way higher than 10. They bought them at 20 or 30. So he picked four, in my opinion, extremely speculative investments that have so far been complete flops. Clover Health is literally, there's, there's a very smart research firm that came out and said, this is like a fraud. Like mm -hmm. this medical software is like fraudulent. They're like, it's just complete garbage. You know, space travel stuff, like none of this stuff has is, is panned out yet in terms of like his stock. So I don't really have any beef with him. I just thought he was taking advantage of this community that was idolizing him. And that, I don't, now I, now I just think it's funny. Like he says some dumb shit sometimes like the, the below here, that line thing. Yeah. And, and yeah, I don't, I don't really have any personal beef with him. I have no problem with what he's doing. I just didn't think he should be idolized because he was really leeching off this community more than he was providing value in my opinion. Yeah. It, it's, it's tough. You know, uh, and we see this in the NFT space. I mean, people are, in my opinion, taking advantage of their communities in a big way. Like I know you tweeted about Gary V charging like 70 ETH to sit next to them at the Knicks game. And like people love Gary V. They're obsessed with Gary V. They want to pay that much to sit next to Gary V. But is there a line where like, hey, we're taking advantage of our community? You know, that that's the hard part. Yeah. And wherever you stand on that issue, um, and I think NFTs are just awful with that. I mean, someone... Yeah. I think I retweeted a, a list of like people. There was a list someone found of like leaked of like uh, NFT Twitter accounts that would get paid for you know sponsored posts and it, yeah, it, it it's it's really out there. You see them tweeting, "Hey, buy this," and you just look at the blockchain and they're selling it. Um, right. So yeah, I mean, but yeah, I mean, Chamath to me, I have no problem with any of the business he's done. I just have a problem with him being like this white knight for the retail investor. All he's done is smoke them and gotten rich on himself. Last thing before we get to listener questions, uh, Phil Helmy tweeted about you the other day. I'm sure you know Phil from Poker Streets back in the day, although I don't think he was really in the same games that you were playing back then, or maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But he sent a tweet that he invested in your fund. I'm not sure how much you can or want to share, but it's got to be some interesting story about you now are managing Phil Helmy's money. I knocked him out of a tournament in 2006. I'm sure he does not remember it. <laughs> but I, I did get like a chair flip, which was fun. So I I, I, did, I did not play with him. He wasn't an online guy. I was yeah. much more of an online player. Um, we have a mutual friend who's also a well-known poker player who just told him to invest. I actually never even talked to him. The only, the only he, just text, he just texted with me. The only, the only interesting part of the story, which I, I'm very comfortable sharing, is that you know his wife ended up filling out the paperwork. 
And like, you don't hear much about Phil Hellman's wife. You know, she's yeah. very under the radar. I don't think she's involved in the social media and Twitter and whatever. She was super nice. She, I think she's like a, a psych, psychologist or psychiatrist yeah. professor. Like, like she's like super calm, down to earth. <laughs> it, for some reason, like you just think like Phil Helmy's wife, you expect like a like a, a personality like him. And and it was just it was so it, for me it was really um, she was wonderful to deal with, and uh, it just wasn't what I expected in my head. Um, but yeah, I I really I think Phil Helmuth has been very successful recently, sort of broadening his network i mean he's like networking with chamath by the way yeah. I'm, I'm sure he hates my chamath stuff yeah. um but he's playing poker games with draymond green yeah. and that whole crew and and um he's involved in SPACs, and you know he's yeah i mean uh it's pretty cool to see the people like him broaden out like that and yeah yeah, no, I know for sure. And I, I, you know, like people say Phil's not that good at poker, whatever. You can debate that all you want. I'm sure Phil is a favorite when he's playing against a bunch of business dudes and, and athletes and stuff like that. And they get some insanely high. Yeah, you can going. say whatever you want about Phil, but he's absolutely crushing when it comes to playing amateur players. Like his right. record is unbelievable. Right, exactly. All right, enough's enough. People have a lot of questions for Jason. Let's run through as many of these as we can here. Question one from Andy. He says, I love it when Jason mixes it, mixes it up with Suzu on Twitter. How did he get the Sue following? What are his thoughts on crypto traders or others using Twitter to arguably pump their trades? Yeah, Suzu, I, I guess he's is managing some crypto fund, and it seems like he's like pretty relentless pumping what seems to be his own positions. But I, I don't know what is it. What is your take on Andy's question here? First of all, I think he's an interesting follow. He's a fun guy. He he sometimes pontificates about you know I, I think people that usually like get outside of their uh, sort of area of expertise on Twitter, it's usually annoying. For some reason for him, when he starts talking about other things, it's very interesting to me. So I, I really like uh, reading his tweets. I have no clue why he's following me. I've never talked to him. Uh, one day he just followed me. So I have absolutely no clue. Um, so so that's that's a mystery to me. But yeah, to me, if, you, if you're involved in Twitter, uh, whatever pumping you might think he's doing, it's just baby shit compared to the rest of my Twitter feed. So yeah. in my mind, I don't think of him as like a, <laughs> a guy pumping his own book um, he's more like a priest or evangelical vibe to me, like pontificating about sort of big life things and big picture things. And yeah, I mean, listen, I, uh, and he also, you know, he's got good you know, shirtless pictures, like he's been getting ripped and stuff. So yeah, I mean, uh, I just think he's a fun, he's a fun guy to follow, but to me, like, I think classifying him as a pumper is just like, I, to me, yeah. that's not, he's not that. Okay, yeah. yeah I mean, most of, anytime somebody tweets something about crypto, about some specific crypto that they like, I just assume they're pumping their own bag. Like, that's just like my immediate no, I'm reaction. Sure he is. I'm sure he is. But to me, like, if there was like a score, like a pumper score, he wouldn't sure. have like a super high score. There's just way, 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 way worse. Yeah. Uh, question two from Stucky. You guys know Stucky, friend of the show from Action Network. He asked, what do you think about Russia default fallout? We haven't really touched on the war that much yeah. at all. Any takes there? So... I think what he means to say is like Russia defaulting. I mean, I, the market is basically pricing. It's like that Russia being completely cut off from the financial system yeah. indefinitely. So I don't think there's like an iceberg big catalyst about to happen where like Russia defaults on like we're already there right now. Um, that being said, I, I think you have to think about three things. One is fertilizer and it sounds boring, but it's a big problem. It's like it, the, the humanitarian issue, and Freeberg talks about this on the yeah. All in Pot a lot, like a huge humanitarian issue that's coming up is poorer countries and food. And it's it's existing because of the 
price increases because fertilizer has been cut off the market from Ukraine. It's, it's a boring thing to, for people to talk about is really, really important. So number one, like I, I hope people with good hearts have start thinking about this because it's a, it's a major, major problem. Um, number two, I would say like markets or something, but like, again, like this is a very small impact to markets outside of commodity inflation, obviously oil and gas, if you're in Europe and you're buying, you think you think buying, you know, you think your your gas bill is bad in the U.S. You should try being in Europe right now. It's yeah. it's like three x. It's completely crazy in Europe. So yeah, outside of things like that, I don't think we're having a huge effect on markets. The third thing that's scary, and I, I'm curious what people's view on this is, is that um, I always wonder if China is looking at Taiwan just to see, just to see, like, hey, like, what are the, you know, what are the pros and cons of of us taking Taiwan. Like they're, they're now seeing like how the world's reacting to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. They can kind of extrapolate to how the world might react to Taiwan. By the way, the Taiwan thing would be over by lunchtime. It wouldn't be like this Ukraine thing where people are fighting right. it would be over immediately. And I think it's very clear that the U S would not send troops in to Taiwan. We would not send our boys and girls to fight like a major military power. You know, people forget Russia is the same GDP as Italy. You know, China is the same GDP as us. Right. right? Like we're talking about like, so, and, and the thing about Taiwan, why it's interesting is that semiconductors are basically the new oil. Like in a hundred years, you can make the argument that like, we're not going to be dependent on oil. What are we going to be dependent on? Semiconductor uh, manufacturing is, is just like, you could make the argument. It's like the new oil. That's Taiwan. Like Taiwan, like everyone, everyone in, that's listening to this podcast has something that was built there. And so are many, many things that are built there. So I think one of the, one of the indirect falls to the war is going to be does Taiwan, Taiwan knows, sorry, China knows that they're going to face economic sanctions, like just like Russia, if they did something like that. So that, I think the sort of cost benefit analysis for them is, is, is the U.S. going to do the same sanctions, which would have a crippling effect on our economy. Um, and they know that we're not going to get involved militarily if they do that. So I think that the odds of something happening there have gone up slightly based on what happened in Russia. And that's the thing that if you want to talk about a geopolitical event that could happen that would really royal markets, that would be way more consequential than Russia, Ukraine. Yeah. I, this next question is actually kind of correlated from Chad. He says, I would like to hear Jason's thoughts on emerging markets where he thinks the leading edge is in finance. Yeah. People have told me and, and people that I think are smarter, like, hey, you need some exposure to emerging markets in case things start to go bad in the United States. And like, it, I think people just assume, and maybe, maybe I'm wrong, they assume, oh, if I just buy the S&P 500, and on my, on average, going to make six percent, like with no risk. I don't know if you still think that's the case, even on a long time horizon. And do you think people should be allocated to emerging markets? I'm much more of a fan of people. Uh, to me, emerging markets is a really broad term. Like the difference between Brazil, Argentina, India, China. I don't know how people group emerging markets together, mm -hmm. but there, there's wildly different situations in every single one of these countries. Like it's not it's it's not very natural to group. Korea, you know, I don't. Japan's developed, but but just outside the U.S., it's wildly different in every country. I sort of believe that a lot of the innovation and a lot of the the great new companies are more likely to pop up in the U.S. than they are abroad. Just look at Europe. Like how many um, amazing tech companies have started up in Europe recently? Yeah. I mean, it's hard. How many companies in China have you even? If you ask someone to name ten Chinese companies, most yeah. people can't. No. especially consumer products, but like even internet companies, most people can't even do that. So like for me, like I think if someone that's a casual investor, it's totally cool to just focus on the U S 
you're, you're paying a higher price valuation wise. But the thing about the US is that shareholders have rights that are enforced in the court of law. Um, even places like Europe and Japan, we've seen that's very hard for shareholders to, to like overthrow the management. Management has a much tighter control on companies outside of the US, generally speaking. And so corporate governance in the US is, is relatively speaking very, very good. A lot of the new growthy internet companies are coming from this part of the world. That's where the talent is. So yeah, I, 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 I'm sort of in the camp of every financial advisor tells you to diversify, blah, blah, blah. I, I mean, unless you really know what you're doing and you have, maybe you have a certain country for some reason you really, really want to focus on, great. But I don't think you need broad-based emerging market exposure. I think you can focus on the U.S. That's my view. Uh, Lou says... Can Jason address cannabis stocks? I took a position on this before my state legalized weed and expected a big win. Instead, it's been a steady downward slide. Yeah, I mean, the pot stocks are something that definitely retail people got involved in for whatever reason. Do you have any macro or general thoughts on the cannabis stocks? I mean, it's like DraftKings. It's just not a good business, like, it, or appears not to be a good business. You know, we haven't had that, like, uh, U.S. event that people thought they would have where everything is legalized in every state, blah, 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 or whatever. We haven't had that. But mm -hmm. effectively, I mean, I live in Oklahoma, which is a Bible Belt, blah, blah, blah. Like, I do not have a medical marijuana card, but like you can get one in three seconds. It's effectively legal in Oklahoma, so it's basically probably legal in almost every state. Um, it's not a good business. Yeah. I don't know what else to say about it. Like, there was a lot of hype behind it, but the bottom line is it's, it's, it's a commodity product. There's a lot of people growing it. The pricing dynamics haven't been very good. These companies aren't making money. That's all yeah. it is. It was like, there was a lot of hype before the catalyst, and now they're not able to really make money. So like, that's all there is to it. It's just not a good business or hasn't been yet. Uh, Sar had a question. Does Jason believe in the notion of a Minsky moment and where does he potentially see excessive leverage today or building towards excessive? I think Sar's point, and he's all over responding to everyone on Twitter that this is all a bubble and, and everything is in a bubble right now. It's all going to pop. I'm not sure exactly what a Minsky moment is, but I assume it's something related to that. Yeah, Sar is seems like a very smart person. I don't do you know him or whatever. He's like no, very smart. I, I don't. Okay. He's like a very smart guy, but he's definitely like a rain cloud. Like always, you know, yeah. the world's gonna end, like very dreary. I don't think everyone should live their life like that. Like I, I, I think it's hard to live that way. Um, even if you believe, like it's it's very hard to time these things. First, a Minsky moment I think refers to like a lot of speculative activity that happens right before a crash. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, like I said before, I think the speculative activity has been very much confined to a bunch of stuff that's already crashed, in my opinion. Yeah. So like the SPACs, the high growth crap, the flying taxis, like all that shit, like it's all crashed. Um, I, I do not agree with that. I'm not a person that thinks we're looking at some sort of epic crash in markets. I'm sure when I'm wrong about this, Sarah will, will <laughs> put the clip on repeat or something. But um but yeah, like like I said, I think what I what I said before holds true. Like if the equity markets on average do seven, eight percent long term, you should be expecting less than that now going forward. Like we haven't had a big pullback in equity. So yeah, four to six percent going forward on the on the S P is where most people are right now. That's kind of what I'm thinking. I, there is a tail event where we get a recession and a and a big market correction. But again, I would put that at like 10% or 15%. And as far as the speculative activity that we're seeing leading up to it. Like we're not seeing the shit that we saw in 2006 with the housing market, all that stuff where people get five homes or buying them all with like zero down. We're not mm -hmm. seeing that. Uh, we're seeing speculative activity in crypto. We're seeing speculative activity in like some of these stocks, but a lot of that's already happened, that correction. So yeah, I don't, I, I don't, 
A, don't live your life like that. And B, um, I don't think, I don't think we're looking at that. Um, a lot of bunch of people had the, you know, the same similar type of question. Uh, you know, are, are we at the bottom now? Are things going to pull back even further? What are the best investments for small business owners? Uh, in periods of recession and high inflation, what are your thoughts on optimal investment strategy? I know you don't or, or you know can't talk about specifics on this stuff, but any tips for people on like figuring out when the bottom is or investment strategies in times of recession, et cetera, et cetera? Well, the small business owners question, I think, is really interesting. Like, I, I don't know your experience. I'm guessing you have the same experience as me, but every time I've taken money, my money and invested it in my business stuff, whether it's been, and some of them haven't gone great, but anytime I've done that, it's been the best risk adjusted opportunities I've ever had. Like betting on my own businesses, uh, whether that's building a business, hiring people, getting involved in new things. It's always been like the most incredible return. So if you're a small business owner, I mean, if you have opportunities to invest in your own business, I cannot imagine in a world where I just said we're getting four to 6% on the S and I cannot imagine a world where you're doing worse, uh, in your own business. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's so straightforward. If you can even, you know, just even things like um, I, I run a business, I want to buy the building that I'm in, like things like that, like, you're going to crush it compared to other opportunities out there. So, so yeah, so a that question, as far as like, what to do with stocks and markets, like, I think the, the sort of barbell approach to investing makes a lot of sense right now, where basically what that means is like, if you think about the risk spectrum, like you want to have some stuff. Uh, what I think is you want to have most of your portfolio in stuff that is on the safer side of things and then take a smaller percentage of your portfolio and take a lot of risk. You're actually getting, you know, it's not a bad time to sift through some of these SPACs that, that every SPAC has stink on it right now. Some mm -hmm. of them are going to be good. Uh, if you sift through the rubble and you find some, some, some sort of high growth speculative company that ends up working out, you're getting, you're getting like 20 to one, 30 to one on, on hitting that right now. Um, high growth software, like it's a good time right now, in my opinion, to take part of your portfolio and go out on the risk spectrum. Crypto, like I, I think if, if you know, again, I have all my money in my fund pretty much. So like I'm not, I'm not the right guy to talk to about this, but I would take, I would take more of your, I would take a little bit more of your safe money and put it in more risky stuff because you've gotten, you're getting much better pricing on that than you, than you were before, whether it's DraftKings or whatever, like it, that that type of risk investment, you're getting really good pricing on it right now. So, yeah. So yeah, that's the only thing I would change for people. Yeah, of course. And like we talk about being price sensitive in DFS and stuff like that all the time. Obviously, it means so much more to be price sensitive here. Whereas DraftKings at 50 or whatever was not good. DraftKings at 16 might at least be a bet. Last question is really, I guess, a gambling question from Richard. He says, "I'd be interested in Jason talking through an option trade and explaining why one side might have an edge." I mean, you're a professional options trader. You're trading against professional options trader, I guess it could just be like DFS or poker where even some professionals are better than others to some degree. Is that just how it is on the options trading uh, kind of uh, market? Yeah. I mean, so the way you got to think about options if you, from a, from a, someone that trades options like for a living is that embedded with an option is sort of expectations for future volatility, right? So if you're buying an option on the S&P right now, I'm just making up rough numbers, it's pricing like a little bit over 1% a day to move. Now it's very hard for an individual like you or me to have like tons of edge in that. But what a lot of market makers end up doing is like, like kind of like in sports betting, like they have, a, they have what they think is an efficient market. So you have NFL Sunday, someone else has the S and P option market and they're market making to that all day. So what I think the key thing is that 
every option, if you're a professional, you're looking at it with a fair value in mind. And you're trying to buy lower than that and sell higher than that. But for, for a sort of less of a market making and more of like, I'm just a guy on Robinhood, how do I trade options? I think what you really want to think about is upcoming events. So where you can find opportunities and options is when you have a different view on an upcoming event than the market does. So that's really what it's all about. So it's so much of people with options are thinking about betting on it going up or betting on it going down. But really the, what they should be thinking about is what is the market implied volatility mm -hmm. and is that right? Um, so, you know, say for example, there's a, a, you know, New York sports betting is opening up and DraftKings, you get your first information on that. Now, to me, that wasn't a huge catalyst for DraftKings, but let's say it was like, that could be an example of a situation where the options market is like, oh, there's, there's a catalyst I'm familiar with that could affect DraftKings. Maybe the options market's not aware of that. So the way a more casual person can find good options trades is sort of think about upcoming events that are, that are a little bit more messy or complicated and try to find options that might be mispriced around that. Mm, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I've never traded an option before in my life, but I know some friends you have and they're always doing what you said. Hey, I think this is gonna go up, let me buy let me buy an option on it, I mean, exactly. If, if you're buying an option for a dollar and you would still have bought it for $2, like you're doing something wrong. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Like, like the price of the option has to like mean something to you. Right. And some people, like whether the option's a dollar or two dollars, they would have just bought it. Right. And by the way, in GameStop, when that shit was going down, it didn't matter if it was one dollar or two dollars. Like you should have bought it, right? <laughs> but, but bigger picture, like if you want to do this as a for more, you know, seriously, like you have to have a really informed view on like, I think it's worth a dollar twenty, I'm buying it for a dollar. I'm not gonna buy it for a dollar thirty. If you're not going through that sort of process and you're just buying because that's where it is, um, you're gonna lose. All right. We said it all. We've taken up an hour of Jason's time here, but cannot thank you enough for being here. I've certainly learned a lot. Hopefully you guys too. Jason, tell the people where they can find you and uh, your impending launch of your new podcast. Give the people the details no, that, on that. So that that's definitely not happening. <laughs> but you know, one day one day I'd love to do that. Um, but uh, as you know, it's like a huge pain in the ass. So oh, yeah. yeah, I think I think one day when when there's less demands on my time, um, definitely. I'd love to do that. Like I said, before the show started, like both my parents are journalists and I, I love talking to people and interviewing people. And, and, uh, so one day, one day, hopefully, but yeah, Twitter, Strassa2, at Strassa2, slide into my DMS. Last time I did the show, I got a bunch of cool ones. I'm happy. I, I will get to them eventually. Um, and, uh, happy to answer questions about, you know, transitioning from poker to other things, uh, trading. Obviously I'm not going to be able to, uh, provide like very, very specific investing advice, but more general stuff. Happy to, happy to help. For sure. All right. That's going to do it for this episode. We'll be back uh, next week for NFL Draft Week, but hopefully you guys found some good overlap here. I know I do certainly see a lot of the same tools and techniques that Jason thinks about for financial markets as we do in sports markets. For Jason, for Producer Luke, I am Adam. Good luck, everybody. Thank you.